everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. We have Maria Evangelista. She's a public defender who in 2018 ran for judge in San Francisco, and now she is taking another shot. Welcome to the show, Maria. Hi, how are you? I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you. Um, So could you talk a bit about what your background is and how you got to this point? Wow, it's, um, I've had a really interesting background. I probably shouldn't be here statistically, um, but, and my parents originally came to the United States in the 60s uh, from Mexico, from a tiny town in Mexico um, to work as farm workers. And then eventually my dad moved up um, to San Francisco to work as a laborer because a lot of construction was booming at that time. And during that time, too, immigration, uh, there was ice raids, and my mom was deported when she was pregnant with me. Actually, I came looking for somebody else, a previous tenant, and my dad came home and saw that she was gone. A neighbor had told him he voluntarily uh, left went and brought her back, but instead of going back to live in the Latino community, he actually um, got a small city apartment in the LGBTQ leather community here in San Francisco, which coincidentally happens to be only two blocks away from the Hall of Justice. Um, And that was one of my first memories in that building, and um, it pretty much changed the directory of my entire life. And can you talk about your experience as a public defender? Yes, I I have been a deputy public defender for 16 years. Um, initially, you know, I had seen a lot of, um, you know, you see a lot of things happening in your community. Um, for me, growing up, I saw that there was inequities. But then at the same time, living in the LGBTQ community, I saw, you know, people fighting for their rights. And it was that kind of political activism that really was contagious to me and made me think that um, I was here for a purpose to advocate for people. Um, I was able, with the help of everybody in my community, to go to Vanderbilt Law School, um, became one of the first Mexican-American women to graduate from Vanderbilt Law School. And I came back to serve my community as a public defender. Uh, I'm a litigator. I've done over 51 jury trials. But the work that I've been working on for the last few years is work I'm really proud of. I've worked in the alternative courts where we, um, you know, study scientific-based principles of recidivism and try to apply that to the criminal population in either drug court or in my specialty, behavioral 
Health Court, which is the mental health population in San Francisco and currently in Veterans Court. Um, it's, it's actually a really interesting idea. You know, we happen to have one of the best, if not the best, public defender's office in the country. But by litigating cases in every community, it's given us a platform to get deeply involved in the community and get the community to know us and trust us and respect us. So this run has actually been, um, you know, you spend a lot of time as an attorney uh, litigating all by yourself, writing motions and going to court. Nobody knows what's going on um, in San Francisco. Though when once I've hit the campaign trail, people know what we're doing in San Francisco, and they they have a great deal of respect and and love for our office because of you know basically I think what, what Jeff Adachi built. And can you talk maybe a little bit about a case that stands out in your career, uh, somebody that you represented that you're either proud of or you found it was a difficult case or something like that? Sure, sure. Um, you know, cases are never black and white. They're always in the gray area. And unfortunately, at least in my experience, you know, I've represented thousands of people. Um, you'll get a case usually after a tragedy has happened of some sort or another. And somebody needs to get arrested. I think everybody feels that way because a tragedy has happened, but not necessarily because a crime has happened. Um, and especially for me, I've had a lot of uh, cases or situations where, um, you know, there's been a lot of presumption, right? You have the presumption of innocence in the criminal system, but when, you know, you see something go down and see, you know, it could go either way, um, you know, the police arrive and, and, you know, those instincts kick in, you know, not that it's bad or intentional, but it's, it's just the way it is. Um, I can think of one particular case um, where a client was praying on a BART train, and this was a trial, and he was praying, and somebody was video recording him. Um, Muslim, he was, it was Ramadan, he was praying, he was hungry, he was cranky, um, and he's had discrimination um, on many levels throughout his life. So he was kind of predisposed to think that this person was recording him because um, he felt targeted. Um, it wasn't his best day, but he got up and he grabbed the phone. And before you knew it, every bar passenger had jumped on him and uh, police arrived and they charged him with a robbery. Um, and it wasn't until we went to trial and we explained the situation. You know, actually, he was a partial store owner. He had his own cell phone. He had no motive to rob the gentleman for his phone. But he just explained, you know, nobody asked him his side of the story. It wasn't until months later, after sitting in jail for months, that we were able to bring in members of the Muslim community and uh, to explain Ramadan and to explain, um, you know, how photographs are not allowed in their culture. And, you know, bringing in that expert witness, you know, really added credibility to the case. But I think what's, what's special about that particular case, and you had no prior criminal history, but it just took me to dive down a rabbit hole of something that maybe wasn't my culture. But I had to be ready to presume that he was innocent when several people, when the crime occurred, did not. Because you know what? The community was angry, too. They're fed up of robberies, cell phone robberies. They're fed up of crime. And they just presumed that that's what was happening. And they jumped in to help. Now, is it a tragedy? Yes. Was it a crime? No. But it, 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 instead of resolving itself like maybe in a community session, it ended up in court.
I'm glad the resolution ended up being the correct one, but, but that's just one particular case of a lot of our cases involve situations like this where there's a lot of presumptions that happen and, uh, and, you know, it's hard to presume somebody innocent because if you've been arrested and there's a tragedy or somebody's hurt or there's been an accident, it's hard to, to presume that somebody has good intentions. So what are your chief concerns about the criminal justice system? So for me, you know, I've, I've um, like I said, I grew up up the street and I've had a lot of interactions at 850 Bryant. Um, the, the main thing for me and the reason why I'm running is I really want the court to be a place where people get equal justice. And what that means is that they're going to get equal due process. We have a country where the rich or the wealthy get a different kind of due process than somebody who doesn't even have a home, who lives in a, in a tent. Um, that's a country where, you know, I, I, it's not the country that we have. You know, we have a country of immigrants that comes here. And the only thing that we each have as individuals is the protection of the Constitution. You know, as a public defender, as a defense attorney, I've advocated for many years to protect each individual's constitutional rights and their due process. As a judge, I'm no longer going to be advocating for individuals and certainly not advocating for defendants, um, but instead I'm going to be the protector of the Constitution in general for all people, which actually means not guaranteeing that you're going to get a result that somebody's going to walk or you're going to get a result that somebody's going to get convicted. But instead, what I'm guaranteeing you is that you're going to get equal due process, you know, whether you come in and you have a mental health illness or whether you come in and you're a millionaire or whether you live in a cardboard box, you're going to get that because I understand what it's like to be a member of the community. And, you know, honestly, I, you know, since very young, you know, as, as growing up as an immigrant, child of immigrants and having that experience where I'm living in two cultures, right? I'm living at home. I'm living in an immigrant culture. At school, though, I'm living in, you know, the American culture and also going to school with children that are middle class when I wasn't. So I learned how to code switch. And being on the bench, it's, it's not about saying, hey, all of a sudden you're going to grant cases and motions for minorities or poor people. What it means is when you come to my courtroom, I'm going to look at you in the eye. I'm going to read your motions. I'm going to give you due process. And, you know, everybody that's running for office or running for judge may say that. But I have actually had the experience to back it up because I've lived that in my life. Those are values that I inherited from my parents, and I've demonstrated it in my work um, as a public defender. And maybe you just answered this question, but what is motivating you to want to become a judge? So I, at some point, you know, I think maybe around the 10-year mark, um, you know, being an attorney is often compared to being a medical doctor, right? You know, you have to practice and then you get better. Um, you, you, you certainly, when you're training to be a surgeon, um, there are certain trainings that you have to take. You know, being a trial attorney is something that's very hard. Um, but there are certain characteristics that I think certain people have that make them really successful litigators. And those are things that you just have to already have that talent and you use it and practice it. For me, at around the 10-year mark, I felt really comfortable in the courtroom. And then I started to think, well, if I was a DA, that's what I would do. And I started to think, well, if I was a judge, you know what? 
this is what I would do. Or I'd say, you know what? This judge just didn't grant my motion, but that was some good judging. If I was a citizen in San Francisco, I would, I would say that that's some good judging. And I would trust that judge to be here um, making these rulings when I can't be here as a citizen, you know, when I'm at work or when I'm taking my kids to school. Um, and, and I actually have interesting background because before I worked at the uh, public defender's office, I actually spent two years at the district attorney's office um, as an intern, an undergrad doing public policy work, doing research on three strikes and recidivism because I was so interested in the issue of recidivism. I, I just couldn't get it, um, get over the idea that so many intelligent people, so many learned people, and then we still have recidivism. Like, is there nothing, is there no think tank? Is there nothing that we can do to get together to, to come up with some really innovative solutions. And so, you know, but I was young and, 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 you know, still learning how to research and learning, you know, what the scientific based principles were at the time. Um, I really feel like over the years, I've gotten to understand the issues from both sides. And I have that, that right judicial temperament. I mean, having children also gives you a lot of patience and uh, I have two six year old twins. Um, and it just kind of gives you that sense of of the, the communities entrusting you to follow the law and make the right calls, but also to make sure that everybody's treated equally. Because you can ask anybody, somebody who's poor, somebody who's rich, they don't want somebody treated differently. They just want their rights respected and treated um, uh, and given due process. Um, and I'm at that point in my career now. Of course, it would be an honor. Uh, when elected, because I would be the first Mexican-American woman uh, to get elected to the Superior Court in the history of San Francisco that was not previously appointed. So um, to the extent that it's important to feel like um, we're integrating the bench, and not just integrating racially, but integrating socially in the sense that the bench should look and have people that are from the actual community in San Francisco, um, because judges in San Francisco don't need to be from or live in San Francisco. So, um, yeah, it just it feels like that next evolution, that next step in evolution. What do you think makes you stand out from other judge candidates? I, well, you know, um, the San Francisco Bar Association rated me well qualified to be a judge in 2018. And it's almost one of the highest rankings. There's no other higher ranking other than uh, very well qualified, um, I think. And those are usually reserved for judges or people um, that do a lot of legal writing, um, somebody very special. So to have a high ranking like that as an attorney who's practiced for so long is an honor. Um, and that makes me uh, qualified. But you're right, that doesn't make me special. What makes me special and stand out is that I was raised by and made by the very community that I would be serving. Um, you know, growing up two blocks from the Hall of Justice, my first memory was when I was about three to three and a half or four at the Hall of Justice. And it was not a good memory. It's the kind of memory that forms the rest of your life um, and says, well, you know, I was born with this brick tied to my leg and you're telling me I need to run this race. Uh, a lot of people say, you know what, this is rigged. This is unfair. I'm just going to stand here. I'm not going to run your race. But I didn't have a choice. I said, you know, my parents sacrificed and risked their lives to get here. Um, and I saw what was around me and I saw the opportunity that I had because in my community, there are not a lot of Latinos that are attorneys. 
I said, I got to run and I'm going to ask people for help and help me lift the brick. And if I have to run, you know, an unintended consequence of that was that running with a brick tied to your leg makes you pretty strong, actually. Um, and, and part and function, too, is is building, you know, something. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, Jeff Dachi, Marla Zamora, who came before me, um, and in hopes that someday more generations can come after me. You know, uh, the National Hispanic Bar Association website stated that uh, it's approximately one in four women in the country are Latina, but they comprise less than 1% of all attorneys nationwide, which is the smallest percentage of minorities um, in the bar less than any other minority group. So I know that there's a need. Um, and, you know, it brings me a lot of joy and fulfillment to feel like I'm, I'm fulfilling um, something that my parents and my grandparents started. Um, nothing would make me sadder than to think that I, I wouldn't reach my full potential, but in, within the context of serving the community. I'm going to move on to uh, some kind of substantive issues that you may may deal with. Um, so do you believe that the composition of juries um, adequately and fairly reflects society at large? And what can a judge do about it? You mean, do, do I think that they represent? Um, Are they representative, the, the, you know, of, of the communities that they're coming from? Well, I think that I can only answer that question within the context of my experience as a trial attorney. I've tried about a little over 50 jury trials, and there's two ways to see the composition. When I started trying jury trials, um, I felt like there was a lot more native San Franciscans. And now somebody that picks a jury trial now might find and we have a lot of people that are coming in from all over the country to work here in tech. Um, and the issue is, is when you have 5% of the population is African-American and a little over 50%, uh, or they say that the statistics are almost 55% of the people that uh, fill the jail beds are African-American. You're never going to get that percentage to, to, to equal out uh, on the jury pool. I mean, it's just not going to happen with that small percentage. And knowing that even within the percentage, even people that are called to serve don't always come to serve, either because of cultural issues or um, because they've got to work. <laughs> and I know that, 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 you know, there are laws that protect people, um, you know, when they're called to jury duty. But that's just not, you know, in reality, um, some communities uh, also feel like that they don't know the language well enough. And, and it's not that they don't want to serve. They don't understand culturally. Um, some people come from countries where they don't have jury trials. Some people come from countries where, um, you know, sitting in judgment of somebody else is not really something that they feel comfortable doing. And so they either self-select or just substantively there aren't enough people um, to fill those categories. So, you know, with the extent of African-American community, um, it just numerically, it, it's impossible because of the way San Francisco's uh, demographics is is built um, and that's just the way it is at least from what I've observed um, in the 50 jury trials um, that I've had now with regards to what can a, a judge do about it I cannot comment under the canons how I would rule on um, any motions that might be brought by a defense attorney 
with regards to jury composition. But that is something that they can address, but something that under the law I can't comment on because it would be kind of like um, crystal balling you on, on the issues on how I would rule. I can just tell you what I've observed. Fair enough. Um, and mm-hmm. you've talked about this issue already, but, uh, you know, I kind of want to square the circle here. Um, do you believe there's an underrepresentation of women and people of color in the court system? And, and by that, I don't mean defendants, but I mean, you know, court staff, lawyers, um, judges, etc. And if so, is there something that a judge can do that can help uh, address the problem? So I think that with judges, and I, um, I've been digging around, you know, statistically, I know that in reaching out to the National Hispanic Bar Association, they currently are doing a study, is my understanding. They don't have an accurate number of how many Latinas there are that are judges. Um, you know, nationally in San Francisco, we have a pretty good ratio of women to men on the bench. We have to remember there's only 54 judges in San Francisco as opposed to somewhere like Los Angeles where there's 600. Uh, but nationally, there is a disparity. Um, I know that actually right before I filed, Mattel came out with Barbie for Judge as part of their Close the Gap program. And one of the statistics that was on the back of the doll box was that, um, only 33% of superior court judges countrywide are women, only 33%. So they made these dolls uh, for ethnic backgrounds, Caucasian, African-American, Asian, and Latina um, to try to help close that gap. So nationally, yeah, we have, we have a problem, let alone the color of, of racial integration or racial, um, uh, you know, balance on the bench. I mean, just the issue of women is still an issue um, and I, I think it comes because it's a very male dom- litigation is a very male dominated um, profession or has been for many years. And we've seen great shifts, but there are great greater shifts to come. And I'm seeing that in the populations of the women that are graduating from law school and that are in law school coming to intern in our office and at the district attorney's office. But, um, you know, how we remedy that is, you know, we support each other and mentorship and pipelining is a huge issue and it's an issue that I um, have been very passionate about working with my colleagues with uh, on the boards that I sit on. Personally, I sit on the board of the Vanderbilt Admissions Interview Program to make sure. And I think every single candidate that I had to interview over the last few years has been women. And so I think that organizations are really open to trying to rectify the situation, giving opportunities, but you do need somebody to step up and say, well, I'm going to be there though to help um, gatekeep the situation and to help push forward and leave the world a little bit of a better place than how we found it. What factors are considered in granting and setting bail amounts for defendants? And what do you believe is the primary consideration? So, basically, um, is a question that under the canons, I can't answer it the way you phrase it because it would be an issue that would come before me in the court, especially if I were sitting on the criminal division. But what we do know in the Humphreys, what I can say is, you know, the Humphreys decision, which stemmed out of um, the advocacy from our office, is that now no longer is the issue going to be whether or not you can pay to get out of jail. Um, it's going to be public safety related. 
and whether or not there are alternatives to incarceration that still keep the community safe. Um, and that's just the state of the law as it's being applied now um, with my colleagues. Um, but I wouldn't be able to comment how I particularly would rule on, on, on a case one way or another because it actually wouldn't be fair because you don't know until you see all the facts that come before you on a particular case. But our office is definitely the one that's spearheaded um, pushing towards getting equity and equality with that, with those issues uh, in the court. Um, what do you believe are the causes of high rates of incarceration among people of color? So I'm just an attorney. I'm not a social scientist. Um, but I know that when I studied political science and social science in college, there's a lot of different theories and, and people can disagree, but I think this, going back to the science is important. Um, I had one professor, for example, that believed that we had a system based on class justice. And this was his perspective. And he felt that whatever um, laws were made were made primarily with the effect to protect property and that people that ended up getting arrested were the haves or the have-nots. Now, if you have a, a, um, a country that is based primarily uh, population of which immigrants, then you see immigrants come in and go through levels of, you know, coming up in society. And that that is one interpretation that he had, that the have-nots were always going to end up being charged or being in jail more because of, you know, property crime issues until those generations became educated and came up. That's one interpretation. But again, I'm not a social scientist. Um, I just I just see what I see firsthand, and um, you know, what I see is 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 there is a disparate impact, um, and that could be one reason. Can you talk a, uh, a little bit about some of the alternative sentences uh, and and programs that exist in San Francisco right now, though? Oh, that I can talk about because I actually happen to be one of the uh, deputy public defenders that staffs the collaborative court. Um, in San Francisco, we have drug court. We have criminal justice court that's centered in crimes that happen or people that live in the area uh, surrounded by a particular block radius over by a civic center. We have uh, veterans court, which is extremely successful. Uh, we have behavioral health court, which is undergoing a revamping right now because of new legislation. Um, that came down um, in California called Mental Health Diversion. Um, we also have a clean slate program that was spearheaded by our office that allows people to come in and uh, where we can or where the law allows, we try to clean people's slates so that they become employable again and so that we end um, the, the cycle of recidivism. I currently am in Veterans Court and I'm particularly proud of um, being the attorney in that court. And we have such high success, not only because we have funding through the federal government, but because when we have a, a veteran population, they're usually people that had stability in one way or another uh, before they went into the military and something happened. You know, we have uh, clients with traumatic brain injuries. We have clients that come back with PTSD. Sometimes we have clients that have physical injuries that are treated with medication or opioids but then they become addicted to. 
and we've been very successful in that courtroom. I've also been in behavioral health court. And as you know, um, it's, uh, mental health is a very hot topic in San Francisco because we're seeing in the streets people with mental health illnesses um, uh, quite literally um, uh, living on the streets and, and, and out there and you're seeing their symptoms. Um, we've seen a spike in that. And, um, you know, we have courts that try their very best to address those issues. The, um, the resources are very strained. And that, that can cause difficulty in being able to fulfill the promise that we give the clients in those courts when we don't have, you know, the program that we promised them or when they have to wait too long in jail in order to access that. Um, but those are courts, you know, with San Francisco has been leading, leading the rest of the country on a lot of these, a lot of these, um, issues. And I expect, um, that, that, that will, that will continue and that we will continue to add different types of, different types of diversionary programs um, or make the diversionary programs that we have more accessible by adding more funding. But, but definitely everybody at the table now is talking about um, the drug addiction and mental health illness because it's affecting everybody. And are these programs working both in serving, you know, the needs of the people um, as well as, you know, keeping them out of the jail and prison system? Well, like I said, we, um, we're serving them when we're able to get them a bed in the right facility that's appropriate for them. Um, and when resources are trained and we don't have access to that, then we're not serving them. Um, and there's times when we don't have um, access to those beds or there's times where um some beds are just not available. Like uh, we need a, a mental health. Uh, we have a dual diagnosis drug use mental health for a woman that's pregnant. Some programs can't take that type of client, but we'll have that person in jail waiting until that type of bed becomes available. Or sometimes the, that bed type of bed doesn't isn't available at all because it's a new uh, problem that that's come across. And, and you've just got to get really creative as a team to work collaboratively with the judges and the DAs to try to find alternative placements. Sometimes those aren't ideal, but we try our very best to do that because that's why we're here. We're here to serve the community and we're here to serve, you know, yes, we are here to serve even defendants and try to get them the help that they need um, to try to get them to not um, reoffend and um, ever be a situation where everybody um, comes out ahead. So what does that, uh judicial campaign actually look like in a place like San Francisco? It's citywide race. Um, and and uh, so it's not like a supervisor's race where it's just um, isolated to one district. It's citywide and, and you go to all of the Democratic clubs and, um, you know, um, affinity groups and, and just talk about, you know, why you're running. Just like the questions you just asked me. Um, and share your qualifications, endorsements, fundraising, all, all the other things. It's just that the canons really do need to be respected because judicial office is something um, where public confidence in the impartiality of the judiciary is so important, um, and that's stressed um, at all times. Um, you, you don't want to feel like um, somebody on the bench is biased towards one side or another or has their mind pre-made up on a particular issue. At the same time, we're dealing with a lot of societal issues in court by default. And that's 
you know, the judges have to jump in and use their discretion um, on a lot of these issues. And in that sense, you know, their personal experiences and values do come into play. Do you find it weird that judges can endorse other judge candidates? I find it weird. Um, you know, I don't know that that's the term I would use. I think that um, I've been very fortunate in the sense that the San Francisco Bar Association gave me a rating. And I'm very proud of that rating. And that is the, um, you know, a lot of people consider that the benchmark for them because the San Francisco Bar Association um, group that does that evaluation is the same group that does the evaluation and rating for judges that apply through the governor. Um, so I don't know that I find it strange or not strange. I don't have an opinion either way. Um, I know that I have my rating and um, very proud of it. And it means a lot to, to voters as, as all as, as do judicial endorsements as well. They're, they are also very important, but I think it's just, um, you know, a matter of having a nice balance of, you know, endorsements versus, um, ratings and qualifications and community support um you know because when you apply with the governor's office um you know you still have to go through the bar association to to get vetted and your application still asks you you know about your upbringing what makes you special what makes you different what are you doing in the community i mean these applications are long they want to know what your judicial temperament is you know are you are you somebody that flies off the handle or are you something that buddy that's even keel that can work with the other side and, you know, get results. Um, these are all things that are taken into consideration. Why did you decide to go this route of running for election as opposed to uh, putting your your name into the hat with the governor? Or did you? Well, I don't, no, I didn't. I don't think that I decided one way or the other to do it, you know, one way or another. I actually think running for me has been an honor. Um, knowing that my parents came here and they never went to school at all and their daughter um, is running for office to serve the community that raised me, I think is really important. Um, I think transparency is an added plus of running. Knowing the person that's running for the seat, San Franciscans being able to evaluate the qualifications of the person that's running, um, their values, uh, what their life story and experiences that they're going to bring to the bench. I think that's really important in terms of transparency. And then there's the added bonus of just, you know, I'm at the bus stop in the morning handing out flyers. Parents are on their way to drop their kids off at school. And I see the little faces of children that look just like you turn around and they'll wave or they'll wink or they'll smile. And, you know, just by running, I've stepped up and, and I've become the role model that I needed, um, you know, when I was young. Um, and there isn't one right way or wrong way. It's two exact um, ends, you know, of the same purpose. Because, you know, a judge um, under the Constitution shall be elected. But if the sitting judge retires before the end of his term, then they are to be appointed by the governor. Um, so it's just another way to get to the same the same route. Having an open seat, though, um there's only two people running for one seat and um, you don't know how many people, if you're applying for one seat, you could have hundreds of people possibly applying through the governor for the one seat. So it's just two different ways of doing uh, something. And I'm, I've, I've been 
well adapted and suited to doing this because like I said, as a public defender, I've worked with different populations in San Francisco and going out and talking to them about um, my qualifications and my values just feels really natural. What are people asking you when you tell them you're running for judge? What What's on their mind? Um, I would say when I ran two years ago, people were, were surprised and stunned that they could pick their own judges um, or that they could elect their own judges. And that's no longer the case this time. I haven't had one people say, I can pick my own judge. They already know because they just saw an election. I think now... Um, you know, it's, it's, people are asking me questions like, well, what, what makes you special? What makes you different? What makes you a good fit? Um, and, you know, I tell them, you know, hey, you know, I've got my qualifications are there, but I'm special because I would be the voice of the community on the bench, which um, is an opportunity that maybe subconsciously I've been looking for my whole life is to serve the community in the best way possible. Nothing would make me sadder is if I didn't fulfill my full potential when my parents um, sacrificed so much, you know, part is to honor them and then part is to honor my community that helped get me here. And then we're just about out of time. So uh, any closing thoughts or things that you want to leave people with? Yeah. So I'm running for seat one. The, uh, there are three open seats. There are six women running. Uh, there's two women running for each seat. And, um, there's a lot of people that are going to turn out to vote, I think, on March 3rd, um, which is Super Tuesday. But it, what's really important to point out is that I think that the absentee uh, voting ballots are going to drop much earlier. I believe it's on February 3rd. So when you get those and you see those and uh, you see Maria Evangelista for seat one, go ahead and check that box. I'm well qualified, um, according to the Bar Association, and I'm a member of your community. And uh, I'm looking forward to serving uh, my community. Well, thanks so much for coming on our show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks. That was Maria Evangelista. She's a public defender in San Francisco, and she's running for judge. And if you live in San Francisco, she'll be on the March 3rd ballot. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for some more tales of everyday injustice. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com. <laughs>